I would love to have you take your Bibles as you come on back, find your way to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And of course, the study sheet in your bulletin I know will be valuable to you as we move our way along today. Continuing our study, of course, through 1 Corinthians, and you have heard us say that in this particular section, chapters 12, 13, 14, there's a unit, uh, these, these three chapters in particular form a unit. Sometimes we read chapter 13 as kind of a chapter unto itself, but it isn't. It's part of a larger argument, and uh, we'll talk about that as we go along. One of the words that's used in chapter 13 is the word knowledge, reflecting on knowledge this week whether it's knowledge of information or knowledge of, of about love or whatever that might be, and reflecting on how some kinds of knowledge can be dangerous. I don't know if you've thought about that. I don't mean just too little. We often say a little knowledge is dangerous. But sometimes uh, the most familiar knowledge can become dangerous because it becomes so familiar to us that we think we have it in hand. And so we don't think about it. We know it. Oh, sure, we know it. But we really don't do it. And I think that that might be the case with this topic of love. I was thinking further about that business of dangerous knowledge. I was remembering a story that a friend of mine told me from his early days of flying. Uh, my friend is, a, is an airline pilot. And, oh, goodness sakes now. Um, when he was first starting out, which is a while ago, Back before all the bells and whistles and some of the, the um, uh, you know, things that will alert pilots today. Let's hope they have those things taken care of. He was, he was uh, kind of a rookie, and because of who he was, he, was, he got on a commercial flight and managed to get himself in the jump seat of the cockpit. He thought that'd be kind of fun. So he could kind of watch, the, you know, the co-pilot and the co-pilot do their thing. He was familiar with flying, of course, at that point. But he, because of who he was, they let him in, the, in there but told him he could sit there and be quiet. Um, let them do their job after all their professionals. So he, he knew his role and he sat and they flew and the co-pilot and pilot talk and flip switches and whatever they do up there in the front of one of those big birds came time to, to land wherever they were going. And he's watching with fascination as they do all the talking to the tower and final approach and all this. And he became aware as they made their final approach that, I mean, he was smart enough about this stuff. No one had put the landing gear down. And he was thinking, well, I'm sure they have this. I'm sure they have this in hand. I shouldn't say this because I'm flying tomorrow. But he was watching. He was watching, and they didn't put the gear down. And he waited. He knew, I'm supposed to be seen and not heard. I'm not supposed to talk. I'm just supposed to sit here. On the other hand, I could, I could die um, if we do a little belly landing. So he waited until the last possible minute that he thought was safe and said, um, is anybody going to put the gear down? And, of course, there was an immediate scramble as the pilot, the co-pilot, the professionals flying the plane uh, took care of this and managed to land it safely. And then, of course, chewed him out for, uh, you know, waiting too long and speaking up and all these things. <laughs> I can't do this right, can I? You're welcome. I saved your life uh, as, as, as it is. But we become so familiar. And I suspect that between the pilot and the co-pilot, they know their job. They got this, Right. Yeah, you can, you can know it so well and, and maybe forget about part of it. 1 Corinthians 13 is kind of like that. The, um, right behind Psalm 23, I would suggest that this is perhaps the second most well-known text in the Bible. It's everywhere. Uh, Hallmark cards, 
weddings, all kinds of romantic settings, people quote 1 Corinthians 13, you know, 4 through 7. They just do. You probably have heard it in all kinds of settings. But may I say, uh, this little paragraph nestled in chapter 13 is, is really not about romantic love. I'm not saying that's a misapplication. I'm not going to you know, get after Hallmark or you if these were part of your wedding vows. It's not the deal. But in its original setting, as, as the readers of this letter read it the first time, they were not thinking, oh, honey, this is about us. They're singing our song. They weren't thinking that. This is about the way a church functions. It's the way Christians treat each other. That's really the context. Now, again, we can apply it elsewhere. No harm, no foul. But it's really about the way a church functions. And, of course, chapter 12, there's some controversy. Chapter 14, there's going to be more. And Paul's making a point here that we need to pay attention to. We need to think about our own lives. And we need to, we need to understand it in its, in its setting, in its context. It makes a little more sense, I think, when we look at it that way. I want to pray for us that God will help us in his word. And then we're going to kind of look at, look at the way this lays out and structural and things like that, some words and all. But we want to let um, God's word speak to us today about what kind of people we are too. Okay? So let's pray as we, as we come. Our Father, we, we always come to the text with a sense of humility in our own hearts and teachability and an awareness that apart from your work, uh, we're just not going to really deal with this in a way that is right because you tell us these things, not only to inform us, but to change us. And we need your help. We really do we need your help to hear and to understand and to love it, this text, and then to do it. And apart from your ability, Father, we, we just can't fix ourselves. We can't. So we ask you to use your word in us today. And we pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen. As always on your study sheet, you see some words of review over the past couple of sermons, reminders of where we have been kind of helps us remember uh, the flow and so on. And then the paragraph that follows today's text, we've mentioned some of those things already, word or two about the, the paragraph. Now, if you keep looking at your study sheet, you see I have, I have three sections, really, and they correspond roughly to the way 1 Corinthians 13 is laid out. Um, in the text, verses 1 to 3 form a, a paragraph, a unit, in fact, Three parallel sentences, as we'll see in a moment. Then you have the description of love proper in verses 4 through 7. And then another paragraph that also holds together and has a number of parallel sentences also. So this is a chapter very artistically written and colorfully written and purposefully written. And I think standing right in the middle is that definition of love. But the the paragraphs I've given you on your study sheet, I, I hope will represent each of those paragraphs as we look at them. I want to read uh, the text. I want to remind us of how it ties into chapter 12. And then we'll read together. If you look at the last verse of chapter 12, you see the, the segue. There's a shift that opens a door to 1 Corinthians 13. That latter part of 1 Corinthians 12, as you recall from last week, the Apostle Paul is talking about what we call spiritual gifts. Those abilities given by the Spirit of God to every child of God uh, for God's purposes in the church and in the world. And we spoke about a number of things related to that last week. But we also were reminded, 
as we'll see again in chapter 14, that in the church of Corinth, these things were misunderstood and misused. This is a church divided. Uh, the church at Corinth, they were struggling with all kinds of things, struggling to, to pull together Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, uh, all the various ethnicities and cultures that were there in Corinth, slave and free, the haves and the have nots. They were struggling to, to figure out how they were supposed to live. We saw a rebuke in chapter 11 a couple of weeks ago as they celebrated a church dinner that included as part of it uh, what we call communion, the Lord's table. And you remember we talked about it back then, how Paul rebukes them soundly because the way they had it, their church life structured, uh, the rich had a lot and got drunk because there was so much wine among them. By the time the poor people who probably worked all day and came to evening church like it likely was... After a full day at work, by the time they got there, the food's gone. Uh, the rich people are kind of a little happy. And it's like, well, this was just great. This was great. I can hardly wait to come back. Um, you catch my sarcasm. Paul addresses them in their division. So chapter 13 comes at just a good time. So he says, chapter 12, verse 31, earnestly desire the greater gifts, or perhaps you do. Maybe he's, some people have took this, taken this as a... Um, Kind of like a, a sarcastic comment. You, you earnestly desire the greater gifts or the higher profile. Uh, either way, he says, I'll show you, I'll show you a better way. I'll show you a more excellent way. And then we read this in chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. There you have it. Now, the first paragraph, verses one to three, and the third, 8 through 13, both use parallel sentences. If you look with me at the first three, I believe Paul's making the same point three times. He is using what we would call sanctified hyperbole. Hyperbole is, of course, that grammatical tool that allows us to use exaggeration to make a point. Okay? Now, this chapter, as I will comment on a couple of different times, is, is a very overanalyzed chapter. Uh, I would suggest it points 
overanalyzed to the point that people miss the point. And I'll, again, I'll address that. And I think that begins here in the first verse. People quickly read this, and especially following on the heels of a conversation about tongues and other spectacular gifts in chapter 12, and they come here and go, boy, let's see, now we're talking about tongues again. So tongues of men and of angels, I wonder what those angelic tongues are. Are these some kind of special is? Can I do that too? And we're missing the point. Hyperbole, each case, Paul is saying, you know what? Even if you could, he's using, he's using extravagant, he's using spectacular speech to say, suppose you could speak in anybody's language, the tongues of men, you knew all the languages of the world, tongues of angels, tongues, you know, spoken only in the presence of God. Listen, if you don't love people and people are the focus here, this isn't about this chapter is not about love for God. It's about love for people because all the examples are about love for people. Okay. If you could speak every language, including tongues spoken in heaven only. Listen, if you don't love people, really honestly, you have nothing. Verse 2, in case you missed verse 1. If I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge and I have all faith. Okay, who does that? I understand everything. I have all knowledge and my goodness sakes, I have the kind of faith that I can move mountains. And again, people analyze this and go, well, now let's, let's talk about moving mountains. And, and I th- you're missing the point. He's, he's, he's saying, if, if, if it's hyperbole, suppose you had great faith that you could say the word and Mount St. Helens or Mount Rainier goes splash right in the Pacific ocean. And he says, you know what? If you don't love people, big deal. So what? Right. Verse three, in case you missed the point in verses one and two. And if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body, you willingly turn yourself into some kind of a martyr and you don't love, you're just kind of stone cold in your emotion. He says, he says, so what you have nothing And each of those verses says the same thing. Just laid right on top of the other same point. It doesn't matter what great skills you have. Fill in there in your study sheet. It doesn't matter what great skills you have. It doesn't matter what knowledge you have. If you don't love people, you have nothing. You have nothing. He's writing that to a church that apparently has been celebrating amazing gifts and abilities, and they haven't loved. This chapter is a rebuke to a church that's been all about, uh, look at me, look at me, I'm special. Look what I have. Look who I am. And he's, he's, he's pointing him back to Jesus. He's pointing him back to the gospel. I put there uh, as a heading for that paragraph, love is greater than any amazing ability. I think that's his point. Whatever skills or knowledge, whatever pedigree you have, whatever you've got in your resume, congratulations, my friend. But if you don't love people, you, you don't have much. You don't have much. Now, I, I take a moment here. I, I, I've called it here in your study sheet a word of exegetical caution. One of our commitments in preaching here at Sunset Bible Church is we routinely want to help all of us become better scholars, better students of the Bible. Whether we spend hours and hours or just casual reading, however it works for you, we just want to provide helpful things to, to allow us all to improve in those areas. And so I, I take a, a moment here with what I call exegetical caution. This chapter 
is uh, one of the ones, again, as I mentioned earlier, kind of abused and overanalyzed, I think, to a fault, makes ample use of the word agape, of course. You're familiar if you've studied Greek words and so on. The Greek word for love, one of them, is the word agape. And uh, often, as I have here in front of you, people think about agape as God's love or divine love or selfless love, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I just want to take a moment to say careful, careful, careful as we make profound statements that are clinical and defined, and that's the end of it. Because as you study the, the, the words that are used in the Bible for love, you, you see not only different ones used, but I'm, I'm saying this, you see overlap in usage. And again, for some of you, you're just, I'm not sure I understand all that. Some of you who were raised as I was with the idea that to go deep, you want to go deep. We're going to go deep into God's word. It meant, meant doing word studies. That was part of it. You did a word study. Oh my goodness sakes. You pull out your concordance and, and got in. I've heard it said, we're going to get deep into the Greek and Hebrew, which always just scares me to death because frankly, you know, it's kind of like brain surgery. Um, you don't want somebody who dabbles to do your brain surgery. You know, no, really, I took a class. (laughs) I'm sure you did, friend, but put the scalpel down. Um, Be careful, be careful, be careful. I'm not saying don't pursue those things. I'm saying be careful in in our pronouncements. Uh, Context is king. You can write that down. doesn't fit on your study sheet. Context, context is really more important than how the word is defined, or in some cases, I found the root. The root of the word comes from, and off we go. Context is more important. To help us understand what a word means. And by the way, you can do that in English too. Um, I've, I've heard from a few over the years saying, I really don't think I'm going to ever get where I want to get in my study of the Bible till I learn Greek and Hebrew. And I'll say, uh, oh dear, oh dear. Uh, actually, you can. And just study the Bible, get a couple different translations and stay right there unless you're really going to go to school and get it right. Um, one of the books that you might consider when you think about exegesis and my caution here. Um, D.A. Carson's book, Exegetical Fallacies. This is a kind of a gloves off. I'm sorry, folks. I know how you were taught. He writes this helpful little book. But guess what chapter one is about? I know. I know. Sorry. It's going to hurt. Pulling the bandaid off. Chapter one is called Word Study Fallacies. Guess what he's going to do? He's going to take us to school and say some of the stuff that you maybe were taught about word studies, you might want to think about again. And guess what word he uses as an example on page, oh goodness sakes, there it is, 31. Yeah, it's the word agape. He's just pointing out that the word doesn't always mean God's love or selfless love or divine love or any number of other things. Sometimes it's used in other ways. If you want to think about that with me, I'll tell you some things after, after worship service, some other examples of where it's used. And it's really not about God's love necessarily. It may be. So in fact, some, some places, agape and phileo overlap in their meaning. I'm just saying context is king. Is that enough on that? But it's just a word of caution to those of you who go, wow, word studies. I love that. I am bless you. Bless you. Bless you. I'm glad you do. Careful, careful, careful. That's just an important Bible study thing. Now, we come to verses four through seven, and I have that under the heading here of love is about doing, not just about, not just, you see my emphasis, not just about feeling. Um, I'm going to read this paragraph again. But as I do, I want to allow my words here on your study sheet to to filter this for you. Um, As we read, you'll notice that verses 4 through 7 are very clearly descriptive of action, not feeling. It doesn't say love feels so much as here's what love looks like. 
Some have taken this paragraph to mean that emotion is, is unimportant and really to love like God is just about actions, right? Just get your behavior right and knock off that, you know, that, that feeling stuff. I mean, who needs that? And some, you know, very cerebral types have said things like that or implied to the point where people who are feeling oriented or emotional, people kind of go, well, I must not be a very good Christian because I've got these emotions. We're going to stop that. Just dry it up and let's get, you know, let's just behave ourselves. And you know what? We, we can overdo that. Um, yeah, we shouldn't be driven by our emotions, but we're emotional beings by design. God created emotion, didn't he? So while this text uses behavior, it's important to say here, like my fill-ins, the Bible does not discount or undervalue emotions. It does not. It does not. Emotions should drive action. It really should. Now, a couple more things as you turn the page and go to that other part. Uh, as I read this, I, I really want you to get this. Um, the more information I give you before I read it again, is the better. Uh, Paul spends as much time in these few verses on what love is not as he does on what love is. There are statements about love is. And there's also statements about love is not. And it's interesting to watch the play back and forth. Uh, that contrast of, of positive and negative, so to speak, helps us to see this text as intended. That is, it is a rebuke. It's a rebuke. The text is a rebuke. And if you really want to add some teeth, I'm going to read it this way at least a couple times, a couple places. You'll see me insert like you are. And boy, it, 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 you feel it a little more viscerally. This text is a rebuke. And if you miss that, if you think it's only about warm fuzzies and hallmark, we're misreading the text. It's a rebuke to a group of people who are all wrapped up in themselves. So he says this about love. He says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast like you do. It is not arrogant or rude implied like you are. It does not insist on its own way. Oh my goodness, do you feel the sting of that? Do you like your own way? Come on, is this a major flaw in your life? Somebody say amen. Is it a major flaw in the person sitting next to you? Easy, easy, easy. Don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. You're so nice. Yeah, love does not insist on its own way. And he would say to this troubled church, like, like you do. Yeah, it is not irritable or resentful like you too often are. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. <laughs> they got theirs. <laughs> wow. It rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Oh, good, some positives. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Now, I trust I did not overdo those, what I would consider the implied reading. But I do think if you look at the broader context of 12 through 14, it's implied. It's a rebuke. And I, let me just say this. If you read that, a couple things should be running through your mind. Um, one, one is um, a profound awareness of how far you have to go. Right? I mean, did, did you read that and kind of pat yourself on the back and say, you know, I'm actually pretty good here. <laughs> is that what you did? <laughs> Boy, I hope not, because it's probably not true. 
we, we dabble at these things. Hopefully we're better at them than when we were younger or first came to faith. Oh, I understand that. The work of the Spirit of God. The first uh, statement in the fruit of the Spirit, of course, first descriptor of the fruit of the Spirit is, is, is love in that list of nine, Galatians 5. I hope we're better at it than we used to be. But, oh, dear, if we read this text and congratulate ourselves on being pretty good at it, oh, I doubt it. And one other thing I think should be running through us here. This is from our, all of our study of the Bible, our understanding of Jesus. Um, as you read that paragraph, you and I ought to be struck by how, how desperate we are for God to help us become like that. In fact, the chances of you doing this all by yourself because you're so nice, they're pretty slim. And if you walk out of here today and say, well, I'm going to work a little harder. I'm going to try to be a little more loving. Can I just tell you that's going to last, oh, I don't know, about 30 minutes. Okay, till lunch is late. That person on the road. <laughs> yeah, it's out the window, man. Yeah. No, no, how, what do you, how do you become better at this? It, it, listen, if it's by trying harder, you've already done that. You've already tried. By pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps and kind of, you know, I'm going to make a better effort. You know, you, you, you're going to be right where you are next year and a year after that year. Listen, listen, when the Bible speaks about, about becoming more like Jesus, here's the deal. You don't get there by just trying harder. You need Jesus to change you from the inside out. You need the Christ of the gospel to do this in you. You are, you are more desperate than you know for the work of the spirit of God to change you. If you think you can just do this magically, oh friend, you're not nearly that nice. Okay? You need, you are desperate for God, even if you don't know it. Desperate for him. Desperate for him. Oh Lord, help me. Oh, Lord, humble me. Lord, give me a, give me a hunger to, to actually love more like this. Because it isn't my default mode. I'm like a computer. You boot me up, you're going to get certain things. And it's my default mode, and it doesn't look like this. And I got a hunch that you're like that too. We wake you up in the morning, and guess what? I don't think that's going to be much like you. People say often, I'm pretty grumpy till I get my... Coffee. Well, guess what? You're not all that magical afterwards either, right? <laughs> Come on. Then it's lunch. Yeah, I'm not real good until I get lunch. And then it's dinner. And then it's a good night's sleep. Come on. Look at the things we use as excuses. No, we're just not this, man. You need the work of the Spirit of God. The sooner you get to that place of saying, oh, Lord, I'm desperate here, the, the better off. So can I just push you a little further toward that edge where you say, this isn't working. Lord Jesus, you're going to have to shape me and help me. I just would urge you to get there quickly, okay? Try a little harder. Yeah, not so much. Well, love is about doing, yes, not just about feeling, but it is about feeling as well. Oh, I want you to hear that description. I want you to be pushed to the gospel. Now, verses 8 through 13. We're going to take some analyzation here for just a couple minutes. won't be long. But I want to suggest to you that the paragraph is a unit, and it reads a certain way. Okay? That is, verse 8 introduces a topic, and verse 13 repeats it. I believe this paragraph is a unit, carefully crafted unit. Love never 
ends. And I think that's the, the, the better translation of that, because I think it's what the paragraph is about. And I think it's what verse, thir- verse 13 is about. So the beginning verse and the inverse say the same thing. I think they're like bookends of a carefully crafted paragraph. And there are English terms for that, grammar terms for how that, that, that plays out. Some of you love those things and you'll figure it out. But we're going to say it, then we're going to talk about it, and then we're going to say it again. I'm going to go to verse 13. Okay, you'll see it's the same thing. Love never ends. So now it says, verse 13, so now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. What is different about faith, hope, and love? And this is what Paul's hinting at. I think it's what the whole paragraph is about. What's different about faith, hope, and love? Well, track with me here. Faith and hope are different from love in that love lasts forever into eternity. More about that in a minute. Faith. Faith is going to change. It's going to be completed soon. Here's what I mean. Faith is, the writer to the Hebrew says, faith is a substance of things hoped for. The conviction of things, what is it? Not seen. Faith, faith is the lens through which we see and believe the promises of God. And there will be a day when you will be with him. And faith will become sight. Right? So now, he says, abide faith, hope, and love. Yes, faith. Faith faith is, is me holding on to the promises of God, but there will be a day when you will see them fulfilled. You will see him. Hope. What is that? What is that? Just wishful thinking? No, no, no. Faith, hope is confident expectation that God is who he says he is, and he will do what he says he will do. Hope. Confident trust. And there's coming a day when you will be with him and hope will be, I'm not saying done away with, hope will be fulfilled. So faith and hope, when we see the Lord, when we see him, when our life here is done, those two shift dramatically. They're completed, but love, love now never ends. Okay. Verse eight says that verse 13 teaches that. Okay. Now, what happens in the middle? I think the whole paragraph is about that theme. Now, verse 8, referenced earlier, some overanalyzed text. This is my understanding of verse 8. I think verse 8 is often overanalyzed. Uh, the phrase, especially as for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they'll cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. I believe that sentence is really underscoring the first. Love never ends. All these other things will some have overanalyzed, and I take it that way. You can disagree with me if you wish, because they look at Greek tenses and voice, if you understand some of those more technical terms, and they, they want to read into this a statement about spiritual gifts and cessationism, as we spoke about it last week. Okay, I have opinions on all those things. I just don't think it's proved in this verse. I don't think that's what this verse is about at all. I think it's about love never ending. I don't think he's trying to make a subtle jab at any spiritual gifts of any sort. I think we're missing the text if we try to make it that, as some do. So don't do that. I think he's underscoring love never ends. Now, 9 to 12, four parallel thoughts. Parallel in this sense. He's contrasting now and then. Okay? He does it four times. That's why that's how I think the paragraph is built. Um, the, the already... And the not yet, to use theological language, okay? So here here are his four. 
says it's the same paragraph or same, a same sentence, I think, four times in different ways. Now we know in part and we prophesy in part. But, okay, that's now. But when the perfect comes, I don't think it's talking about the completed canon, the scripture. I don't think so. I think it's talking about the day when we see the Lord. When the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So now, then, already, not yet, the coming. Now, he says it again. Um, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. I think that's the now. When I became a man, I, I gave up childish ways. That's the, the completion, the maturity part. Now we see in a mirror dimly. That's now. But then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully as I have been fully known. I think it's the same thing four times. And it's underscoring something. He's teaching a lesson here. Uh, These things that are now here, we are struggling with, in this case, spiritual gifts. And let's be honest, getting along and putting up with all the people and putting up with me. Now we struggle with those things, but there's coming a day when those struggles will be done. Love will continue. And I think that's, I think that's the beauty of this text. Love, love will continue into the ages. What kind of love? Oh, my friend, listen. Today we struggle to love and be loved. We just do. We struggle with that. All our lives. I don't care who you are. Tell me it's not so, and I won't believe you. We struggle to love and to be loved. It's hard. It's hard work. Loving others who are not like us. What's wrong with them, right? <laughs> and to, to, to know love, to feel Love to have all these things. We talk about needs and so on. I know, I know. But there's coming a day when you, if you know Jesus, when that longing, that struggle will be not done away with, it will be fulfilled. See, the Psalm writer says of being with the Lord, he says, in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. C.S. Lewis waxes very eloquent on this topic. I'd refer you to some of his studies. I could help you figure out where that is a little later, but He talks about how, if you think about this, every longing, every appetite, every appetite here, things we struggle with, every one of them is fulfilled. It's a a breath of heaven. It's a hint of what is to come. Longing to be satisfied. Oh, here, it'll never happen. Not fully, not finally, only then, see, it's a hint of heaven, Lewis would say. I think this, this is a magical chapter. Yes, love. He's saying it's a rebuke. Oh, come on, you guys. Love, love, love. Run to Jesus. Let him help you do that. But, but listen, love is never going to fail, and it's finally going to be fulfilled that when you're with the Lord. There's going to be a day it's going to be done. These struggles that divide us, there's going to be a day it's going to be done. And you'll be with him and love, oh, this thing we pursue now when it will be completely satisfied. I think that's really the message of of 1 Corinthians 13. I put in your study sheet here. It's interesting to, to think about the immediate presence of God, the way it's described, Revelation 21. And if you want to write down another text, um, it's kind of cool to see the way the two play together. I should have put it in the notes and I didn't. Revelation 21, 1 through 4 is kind of a, 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 an amplification of Isaiah 25, 6 through 9. I, I think Clearly, Isaiah's text was on John's mind as God moved him to write the book of Revelation. Isaiah 25, 6 through 9, talks about a veil that covers all of humanity. And it's talking about, I mean, a shroud. The NIV says shroud, 
which brings to mind the idea of death and then how God is going to, there's going to be a day when he's going to remove death. He's going to, I was thinking about that, especially on my mind, second hour as Shar Bate was here with us, who just Tuesday morning said goodbye to her husband. You know, there's coming a day, Shar, and the rest of her family. It's coming a day when that shroud that covers all humanity will be removed. It's coming a day when the, the separations and disappointments and loss are over, are going to be over, done fully and finally. Yeah. Revelation 21 describes a setting where love, the love of God, washes over his people, and he is among us. Wow. On that day, Jay Mosser will not struggle anymore with selfishness. Nor will you, my friend, because it's your problem too. Now, we're going to bring the morning to a conclusion by remembering Jesus in communion. The little piece of bread and the little cup point us to Jesus. They just turn our feet to the cross, remind us of his blood shed for us, his body broken. And as we, as we do that, there are two areas I'd love to have you think about. First is just to, just to rejoice, just bask a bit in that, that coming day when the things we struggle with, like love now, when that struggle will be done and we'll be with the Lord. Think about that. And then I have on your study sheet there, second bullet point under responding to God's word. I don't, I don't know for you if there has ever been a time when God has deeply and profoundly confronted you with your love of yourself and your inability to love other people. I don't know, maybe for you, if there's ever been a time when God has taken his Holy Spirit two by four and kind of smacked you with that. If that's never happened or hasn't happened recently, I commend it to you that God would work that grace in you to bring you up short and realize how many of your words and offenses at their very core are me loving me more than I love you. That's why I bite other people and kick other people verbally and wish them off the road. They're in my way. I'm going someplace important. It's because I love me. A lot more than I love them. And you have the same problem. You have the same thing in your soul. How many of my words? Anyway, think about this. And maybe ask God to to give you the grace of that, that divine confrontation that would point you to Jesus and say, Oh God, would you help me here, please? Help me. Humble my proud heart. Teach me to love. Teach me to love. I want to pray for us. Those who are going to serve communion, come. And let's, let's take these final minutes. With Jesus. Pray with me. Father, how we need your grace, the grace of divine confrontation, allowing us to see ourselves as we are. We are, we are more selfish than we want to admit. We want to think that most of our problems with other people are because they are such idiots. Oh, Father, it is, it is, it is not them, it's me standing in the need of prayer. So, Father, point us to Jesus today. Thank you for the blood of Christ shed for us on the cross. Thank you for his body broken. Thank you for forgiveness of sin. Thank you for daily grace. Thank you for the work of the Spirit of God. Gentle, persistent, the hound of heaven pursuing us. Thank you. I pray that in these moments, our Father, you'd speak to us about things that you want to talk to us about. Maybe there's sin to be addressed and confessed. 
Maybe there are areas of life in which we need to grow, and you've been trying to tell us, and we really haven't listened. Maybe that's now. Point us to Jesus. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.